I, I always find it interesting how the room changes during the retreat and during um, the talk, because there's often a little gap starts to happen because uh, people want to sit in chairs, and which makes total sense, but it's, it just, it's, it's a little stadium-like when there's so many people <laughs> back there. And, and I've, I've been remembering, um, you know, because we lost electricity a little bit, I've been remembering um, uh, different times when we've had emergencies or things have changed here. And, and w really, one of my favorite times was when we really lost electricity and I had to give a Dharma talk. And, you know, I'm not, I mean, I can raise my voice, but I'm not so big on it. And so everybody moved really close. And that was a whole different field to be together in that way. So I want you to all move. No. And I'm also totally love that the electricity works and I can speak relatively normally and you can hear me for better or for worse. <laughs> um, uh, here I'll start, I'll start with one of my favorite Buddhist quotes. Favorite Buddhist quote. This is from the Lankavatara Sutra. Things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. <laughs> and I like that quote because it's a very, uh, for me, a very compelling description of reality. <clears throat> Things are not what they seem nor are they otherwise. And I like it because it's not, um, it doesn't make sense in the usual way we think about things, but it has a ring to it that we all understand, even if we don't understand it intellectually, somewhere we know, oh, that's true. And so I appreciate the, paradox that's inherent in that teaching. <clears throat> and I find a paradox to be a, a very valuable component of the Dharma and of what we're doing here and of what it means to wake up a little bit or to begin to see who and what we are or the way things are. <clears throat> and the practice we've been exploring this week, the, the Satipatthana teachings, the teachings are, are generally called mindfulness. Sati could also be translated equally well as awareness, the practice of awareness, uh, the practice that we're doing and we're teaching and we're exploring and we're learning and we're investigating and we're uh, learning about and we're getting and we're not getting all at the same time. 
<clears throat> and I like the Satipatthana because it's so simple, right? Like, really, we're giving you one basic instruction, right? Pay attention, be aware of what's actually happening right now. That's, that's very simple. And I love that it's simple because I like simplicity personally. And I also appreciate the simplicity because it's difficult. Because simplicity itself is not easy. We're oriented to a much more complex world, an idea of the world, an idea of who and what we are and what reality is. And so that orientation towards the simplicity of reality is, again, a little contradictory or paradoxical. And the, and the Satipatthana is so beautiful, this teaching of awareness and paying attention to the experiential moment and being guided into experiential reality more and more, and to use my word, to be more intimate with experiential reality, to keep coming closer to it, to keep being curious, not so much in an intellectual way necessarily, although the intellect can totally function, but it, but to be intimate in an experiential way, in a felt sense way, in a direct knowing way, in a way that doesn't just bypass our intelligence, but includes all the levels of intelligence that's sitting here, body, heart, mind, and beyond the usual idea of body, heart, and mind. <clears throat> and the Satipatthana is paradoxical in a certain way because it's so simple and it's so doable and it's not doable. We can't do it. And so that's a beautiful part of the paradox because it pushes us beyond what we know. It, it starts to expand us. Let's take away push. That's too aggressive for Buddhism sometimes. Um, it, it expands us or opens us beyond what we know about ourselves and reality itself. <clears throat> and so we can do it and we can't do it. And there, in that supposed tension or paradox, reality starts to flower or reveal itself in ways both known and unknown. <clears throat> and so another, I'm going to give you some of my favorite Buddhist quotes today. So here's another one. Because I believe true practice uh, um, allows us or supports us or reveals the paradox of the Dharma itself. The Dharma that's sitting in each seat right here. Not the Dharma that's you know, written in all the texts or, or also the Dharma that's in all the texts and the paradox of that. 
but also, but really the paradox that's sitting right here, that's breathing, thinking, feeling, sensing, liking, not liking, wondering, thinking I've got it, thinking, shit, I don't have it at all, you know, and, and that living reality starting to be known and revealing the Dharma here. And so from one of my favorite and I'm going to ask for your um, uh, to um, your something. I'm going to ask you to forgive me because what happens when I start teaching a lot is oh, I can't remember. Did I say this in the in the in an interview with someone? Oh, did I say this in the small in the little groups we did? Did I say this last week at SF Insight? Or so if I'm repeating myself, you can. Either say, be quiet. No, you can't do that. But you can say, um, you know, you can just know that it's because the Dharma's doing the talk, right? I mean, I'm doing part of it, but I'm not doing all of it because I can't. So please um, indulge me that way. So, my, and so I can't remember if I said anything about Ryokan here. Did I say anything? I did. Okay, good. Because I love Rio Khan very much, and and uh, he's one of my teachers totally, and I appreciate his humanity. So uh, that is so full and so beautiful, and it's not separate from his deep understanding of reality and the Dharma. And he said, "The Buddha, Buddha, is your mind." The Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. I mean, I could stop there, right? That's, I'll finish the quote in a second, but isn't that great, right? Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. So here's his teaching. Right? And his instruction, Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. And then because he's polite, he says, if you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? And so the paradox he's pointing at, and the simplicity he's pointing at, the Buddha is your mind. And the way doesn't go anywhere. It, there's a way, but it doesn't go somewhere. It's right here. And he says, don't look for anything but this. Pay attention to this. This reality, each of us, that's sitting right here to see the truth of what he's saying. And of course, the paradox of the Dharma is in Buddhism and it's, it's everywhere when we start to look around, when we start to pay attention. And one of my, another favorite quotes has to do with, um, is from T.S. Eliot, who was a secret Buddhist teacher. He said, and he's talking about his own 
unfoldment. And what happened, he said, teach us, teach us to care. Teach us to care and not to care. That's a beautiful Dharma teaching. Teach us to care and not to care. And he's pointing at the duality and the, I'll say it this way, I'll say it a better way in a minute, the multiplicity of reality. That part of us, we want to learn how to care fully, deeply, completely. And and in Eugene language, we also want to learn how to let go fully, completely, deeply. So teach us to care and not to care. And so I'm throwing out some ideas here because I want to throw out some ideas, meaning I, I want you to feel the ideas, sense the ideas, think a little bit about the ideas, but see the impact of the paradox for you. See if you stay present with the, the impact or the sense of your body and heart and mind with the paradox or with the implications of the paradox, whether it's Rio Khan or T.S. Eliot. <clears throat> and don't be surprised if you don't understand paradox in the usual way because it's not necessarily to be understood. One of my teachers, Hamid Ali, he said, paradox means the mind doesn't get it. And he's talking about conventional mind here. Paradox means the mind doesn't get it. That our usual understanding, oh, it doesn't make sense in some way. And so there's something else being asked of us or drawn out of us or nourished in us that will understand that not just our usual thinking about or mind. And um, if you know me a little bit, you know I like words and I think they're totally amazing. As somebody was saying here about how amazing words were. I can't remember, was that you or you over there, Pascal? Oh no, maybe it was Quilly or <laughs> Pamela. Or <laughs> that the words are, are um, uh, powerful, which Pascal was saying, but and magical. And they can cause harm or cause awakening. And it's just wild, you know, the, the, I'll say how Eugene likes to point at this. He says, he says, you know, I could be saying, God, what I said, and you do get some transmission with that, (laughs) but it's a different, there's a different transmission with language and words and every group of people in this world has created a language and then communicated in that in order as part of human reality. And I just find that fascinating that, that it's not, you know, it's, it's, there's something else that happens. So, so paradox. (laughs) 
In, in the dictionary is a statement that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. And it comes from the Greek. So the Greek is alive here right now. Another paradox, right? The Greek, the ancient Greek. And, it, and, and I, can't, I don't know Greek to actually say this correctly, but I'll say it in Eugene's way. Paradoxon was the Greek term, at least the way it looks here, means unbelievable or literally beyond belief. It's not based on belief. It's about some understanding that can happen of seemingly contradictory ideas and it just goes, uh, or I got it, or understanding happens. And then maybe you can explain it and talk about it, but the understanding is like that. And let's see. And I believe part of our practice is to begin to embrace paradox. Not just embrace, but live the paradox. And somebody asked me, uh, one of you was asking me if I'd ever heard John Cage, if I knew who John Cage was. And John Cage is somebody I know a little bit about because I was a musician for many years. And he was a musician and a writer and kind of a, had his philosophical and spiritual component to him. And um, uh, he said about his work, he said, I am trying to become, I'm trying to be unfamiliar with what I am doing. I'm trying to be unfamiliar with what I am doing. And that's a beautiful he understood, I mean, for me, says so much, even about meditation, because I've meditated a long time, and I know, you know, I know a little bit about meditation, and that's good, but I also keep learning more when I let go of what I know and see that there's, there's more I don't know, that I'm not, from, being familiar doesn't have to negate the the mystery of reality that's sitting right here in each seat. And I, I, I want to say that, I mean, I'm, just because I like John Cage a lot, he wrote a very famous piece called Four Min I think it's Four Minutes, 33 Seconds. And how many people have heard that piece? Oh, great. And you want to hear it again? <laughs> <laughs> Here, wait, I'll do a little short version, just a 10-second version. You ready? Especially for you people who've never heard it. It's very cool. Listen. That's the 10-second version. And he, and he performed that and caused a big uproar because he was pointing at something about reality that people, that of conventional reality that people weren't hearing. And so he did a piece and he had a p pianist get up there and sit at the piano for four minutes and 33 seconds and not play anything. 
But sound is everywhere. And he was tuned in to that aliveness and the, and the music of it, which was a beautiful thing to offer to all of us because it's one of the things you discover in meditation practice. Just sitting here, sometimes the sound or even the sound of no sound is amazing. <laughs> I feel like, I feel compelled to say, oh, that, that was a real Eugene thing to talk about. Meaning it really didn't have much to do with the Dharma talk, but I just love John Cage and I love that he did that piece. And I, and I love that we can sit here in this way that looks like we're not doing anything and so much is happening. It's just like what he did when he asked people to listen to the four minutes and 33 seconds. <clears throat> so the paradox of practice, of, of uh, meditation practice, of awareness, of mindfulness, heartfulness, bodyfulness, of being right here, which um, Alexis was pointing at in his talk, because we have, we have mixed feelings about meditating. Uh, and again, this is my assumption. If you have no mixed feelings, you can tell me later or, or write me a note or something. No, don't write me a note. Don't do that. No, but, but really, we, we have mixed feelings about being aware and about being right here, about being in the present moment. You know, on one hand, we're all here to be here and be in the present moment. And on somewhere in us, we actually don't want to do it. Or we have mixed feelings, maybe best way, that it's too much, or it's too fresh, or it's too unfamiliar, or it's too unknown, or it's too vulnerable, which Alexis was pointing at that. Or there's too much... Uh, unfamiliarity with what actually happens in the moment that there's nothing we can actually hold on to even though we're so used to think we're holding on to things and so it's it's as Alexis was saying a little bit raw and naked to come into meditation practice and we have mixed feelings about being raw and naked you know, we like it sometimes and sometimes we don't. <clears throat> and you don't have to change that or fix that. We want to include that in the awareness. Just like we want to include exactly what's happening now in the awareness, whether it's positive or negative or good or bad or right or wrong, right? Any of those supposed contradictions <clears throat> I I had a teacher who I was working with for a while doing some samadhi practice and uh one wonderful teacher really knew how to guide people in that way and he would but he kept encouraging me he said oh the only way to do samadhi really and this was like this was mindfulness of the breath like you know serious 
concentration practice, he said, oh, you have to let go of everything else. And you just surrender to, give yourself, devote yourself, whatever words you might, might work for you. That's what you do when you do samadhi practice. And you give up everything else, whatever else you want, think, believe, feel. You give up and then see what happens when you do that kind of practice. And I always loved that instruction, let go of everything, because that's so not really what we want to do. We want to let go of the things we don't like mostly, which, you know, if that works, great, let do it. But, but there may be more when we see the freedom that's possible in the unholding or in the non-reification of reality or the non-solidification of reality because reality is not solid or concrete in that kind of way. It's much more alive. It's much more fascinating. It's much more mysterious than, than the thingness of things. And of course, we know if we really could see into this, even this thing is not solid. That the atoms are, are moving and, and alive. And it's just in a different rate of time and space than we're used to. So one of the great paradoxes of practice is seeing that you can't do it. And I appreciate that very much because it brings forth its opposite. We start to see, oh, the practice is doing us rather than just we're doing the practice. Or the Dharma is doing us rather than, oh, we're doing the Dharma. <clears throat> and the failure that we can feel, which is very normal in, in cycles of practice, you know, given I've been practicing a while, you know, 30 years or something, you know, I've, I've failed many times in practice, or I've experienced the feeling of not knowing how to do it, or failure. And that is not a bad thing. It doesn't feel great. and you can, It's easy to, for the judging mind to come in and say all kinds of bad things about it. But it's part of the living and dying that's actually happening in each moment when we really start to perceive reality. It's here and gone. Things come and go. That impermanence that Nikki was talking about is real and is alive and is not a bad thing. It's part of what we're coming into harmony with, the reality that we're living and dying moment by moment, moment by moment. The thoughts come, go, the feelings come, go, the body sensations come, go. You know, if, you're, if I was a scientist, I could tell you the timing on the, you know, blood or the cells or the organs or, you know, they're all appearing and disappearing over different rates of time that happen cellularly, moment by moment by moment. And the failure 
supports us in giving ourselves wholeheartedly to practice and seeing it's going to do us or it's going to reveal itself rather than, oh, we're going to do it, right? The usual conventional sense of self and self-well is not what takes us to realization. It's a part of it. It's part of what gets us going, got us here. And, and then at a certain point, something else happens. Here's uh, from Dogen. He says, realization, realization is effort without desire. Realization is effort without desire. Beautiful paradox right there. Effort without desire. And then he poetically offers more teaching. Realization is effort without desire. Vast sky, transparent throughout. A bird flies like a bird. Deep water, all the way to the bottom. A fish swims like a fish. the poetry of dharma, of reality, being expressed over time and space, because Dogen is not alive, or is he? Because here his words are living, and what he said is alive in us, me repeating his words, and in your hearing the words, whether you understand or not. But the impact of Dogen or the Buddha or the aliveness of human reality may not be as static or reified or concretized as we think about in conventional reality. That reality itself may be more magical than we know or more mysterious than we know. So another component of the paradox of the Dharma is our relationship to dukkha, right? Actually, um, I, think, I think I first heard this idea in, in many, I've heard it in many ways, but I heard it from James Berez, who gave a talk on the I, I'm not sure exactly the title, but it was like The Pleasure of Suffering. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, because, right, that sounds, that's contradictory or paradoxical, what's being pointed at. And it's part of what you all start to experience and talk about. And we hear it in the interviews, and you'll say it. In a, or we'll all say it because we've all experienced it in a su slightly surprised way. And, you know, we'll say things like, I'm, I'm weeping and it's good. I'm happy I'm weeping. It's good to weep because I'm not holding on to it anymore. I'm not stuffing it down and it's just good. Or, wow, I see how scared I am, and, I, and I'm still scared, but it's just great to see it. 
I mean, that's, again, it's a little paradoxical. In the dukkha, starts to become non-dukkha, but it's still dukkha. <laughs> there, yeah. Now I'm getting into paradoxical teaching. I, that came out of me. Um, <laughs> so you can quote me on that. <laughs> and really, and, and, I, and it's true, meaning it's not that the content changes, but our understanding of reality shifts. So even with dukkha, there can be freedom from dukkha. And that's paradoxical. And that's the Dharma. And people, somebody asked me this question, maybe a note while I was here about, well, wait, what about this suffering? Is this, what is this about? Is this about the end of suffering? Does suffering really end? And, and it's a very tricky question because the Buddha taught, right? His main teaching, suffering and the end of suffering. But what does it mean that he has a bad back when he's older? Is he suffering? Or is he someone who it's understood is totally free from suffering, but he still has a bad back? That's why I like the Buddha. He was a human being and he was free. And the paradox, he wasn't bound by the paradox. <clears throat> or, yeah, I could go on with the, the paradoxes of dukkha, you know, that we can all of a sudden see we've been defensive and, we, and the defense relaxes or falls away and, it, and we feel good, but we feel totally vulnerable at the same time. And the reality of being real with First of all, with ourselves, of course, is great. And then seeing generally in, in a place like this, it's comfortable, can get safe enough so we can be real together. And there's, uh, I, there's nothing more blessed that I know, really, because the Dharma is just not about us. One person, it's about us in a complete way. And the poet Rilke, he put it beautifully. He said, ultimately, it is on our vulnerability that we depend. Ultimately, it is on our vulnerability that we depend. Again, a paradoxical understanding of what it means to be vulnerable. And... Um, just because I'm into my quotes tonight. Um, here's another description from Wendell Berry, the poet. He said, I go among trees and sit still. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles in water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle then what I am afraid of comes. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it. 
The fear of it leaves me. It sings and I hear its song. What I am afraid of comes and I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in that leaves it and the fear of it leaves me. It sings and I hear its song. Now that's a beautiful understanding of the paradox of Dharma, of sitting with reality as it is, not based on we like it or we don't like it, but on the aliveness that's here and that sometimes manifests in the dukkha form of fear or anxiety or wanting or hating or fearing or I'm hungry, why don't they ring the damn bell? Whatever it comes in. But the aliveness here, when we get here with the feeling, with the what Eugene likes to call the somatic, the kinesthetic, the, uh, the affective and cognitive experience that's here, when we get very intimate with it, reality sings and we know its song. So part of the way paradox is talked about in Buddhism very specifically is called the two truths. The two truths. And you all know the four noble truths, right? But this is a different teaching. Less truths. Two truths. And the two truths, here's a, again another poetic description of the two truths from Nagarjuna, who said the Dharma taught by Buddhas, the Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. The two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. So it's pointing at the paradox of practice, of our humanness, and what's to be discovered or realized or touched or open to right here. And it's pointing to the two truths often talked about, not just talked about as conventional truth or rel relative truth and ultimate truth. And they're 
they're beautifully each themselves and totally together. Right? And this is part of the paradox is they're different and they're the same. And one of the pitfalls of the teaching of the two truths or the, or the intuitive understanding that everybody always already has some sense of is that we think, oh, we're, we've got to get to the ultimate. That's where, the, that's where it is. Give me the ultimate and then I'll look like this and everything will be fine for forever. Right, And one of the paradoxes that is said so beautifully, he said, you cannot know the deep without relying on conventions. That the ultimate is realized here in the relative or through the relative or with the relative. And it's the beauty of the relative, meaning us, normal human beingness, is the doorway to all of reality and to what human beings have discovered in every tradition, every culture, in every world, in different ways through their direct experience. And so one of the pitfalls can be if we're oriented, oh, we want the good stuff, we want the ultimate, we want Buddha nature, which, and it's great to want that. You don't have to not want that. It's a, it's a wholesome want. It's a wholesome intention. Wake up. The Buddha wasn't afraid to go for what he wanted. He, he, he sought freedom and he went for it, even when people said it wasn't even available. The best teachers of his time said it's not available. And he said, and, and he realized what they were teaching and they wanted him to teach for them. And he still felt there's something more and he trusted his intuition. <clears throat> but he didn't push away himself. He didn't, the judging mind didn't come in and say, oh yeah, it's, you're, you're bad and that's why you're not getting there. Or there's something wrong with you and you'll never get there. He kept looking at his own real experience and seeing what kept showing, revealing freedom and how that, and then he understood how that happened. So the, and the, what I'm encouraging here is the understanding that really I know from the Zen tradition that the two truths are equally true. They're both true. There's relative truth, there's ultimate truth, and they're equally true. And that's a beautiful dharmic understanding of reality. Because then it's not like, we're not here to get away from what's here. We're here because what's here leads to
to all of what's here. And every level has its value. And I have a lot of great quotes that prove what I'm saying is right. <laughs> or hopefully support my, what I'm offering. Well, I'll give you a few of them. One is from Izumi Shikibu, Japanese woman practitioner. And she, here, I'll, I'll read you her poem, which it was, is a very common way in Japanese Zen for people to express their understanding. She said, watching the moon, and I hope you've all been watching the moon over these days, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I, I knew myself completely no part left out. There's a beautiful understanding of the Dharma. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. The relative and the absolute, the relative and the ultimate, both, all part, no part left out. And of course, the moon in Japanese Buddhism is a symbol of enlightenment or used as a symbol of enlightenment. And the, the paradox of reality and our relationship to all of ourselves including our thinking mind, which gets a bad rap often in the Dharma or in Buddhism. And, you know, and that, you know it's not, too, not horrible that it gets a bad rap because it could use a bad rap once in a while, the thinking mind. But, um, but it's not really the enemy. It's not really the problem. There's just more to who we are than the thinking mind, right? And we're so identified with our thoughts that we actually lose the perspective of what's here that is not the thinking mind. And so the, one of the great uh, Buddhist texts, the Shinshin Ming, Shinshin Ming, the mind of absolute trust. Uh, it says, uh, if you wish to move in the one way, and it's, it's kind of one means non-dual kind of, if you wish to move in the one, capital O, way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Do not dislike the, the, uh, even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. Again, the paradox of opening to the human experience fully. And it's also said, I don't know if I said this here, I know I said it in some of the interviews and we've been talking about it, the teachers in Japanese, and they, they say, 
Oh, uh, oh if you, you want to be awakened, be yourself. Be, be yourself totally all the way to the end. And it's a beautiful teach. Be yourself totally all the way to the end. Because we're not getting rid of ourselves, but it's through who and what we are that reality reveals all of itself. And we come to an end, not of, let me see, I don't want to use that word. Uh, yeah, I'll use it anyways. The end, meaning we go all the way to the end, meaning we go beyond how we know ourselves. We go beyond the familiar. We go beyond the conventional, through the conventional, and the conventional flowers into the unconventional or the ordinary flowers into the extraordinary. That's all right here already. It's not something you have to make or create or do. And yet it is part of our practice to discover something we intuitively know is already here. So I um, hope it's helpful to offer some thoughts and reflections and pointing at the paradox of the Dharma, of who and what we are, of what we're discovering, and what it is to discover reality. <clears throat> and I'll end with a quote. And I'm, I'm going to end with a quote from my friend, Ginny Morgan, who died a few years ago. And she was practitioner and founder of Mid-America Dharma. And in the old days, I used to go there and teach in... in Let's see if I can remember the city, Kansas City, Missouri, for Mid-America Dharma. And it was, uh, I remember, and, the, and it was actually the, here, okay, you're going to get a little story from me. So the first Dharma, formal Dharma teaching I did at a retreat was at Mid-America Dharma. I'm remembering now the whole story. And Gil Fransdale had asked me to come and assist him, and he was a real teacher, and I was like a being trained teacher. And I said, "Okay, you know, I'll go to Mid America, and you know." And Gil got sick before we were supposed to go, and he couldn't go. And I'm like, "What? You can't go?" <laughs> he said, "No, you you have to go by yourself." I'm like, "I have to go by myself." I don't know what to do. He said, oh, you'll figure it out. I'm like, I'm like, really, really, if I be honest, I'm like, oh, shit, you know. And, you know, and I went, actually, I really uh, asked for a little help. And so 
Pam came with me, I encourage her to hold my hand, basically. <laughs> it's true. It's a long time ago. So I went, and Ginny was the manager of the retreat. And that's the, how I met her, and, and we became good friends for many until she died. And beautiful being, just a beautiful, deep being, and beautiful practice. And, and uh, at one point, and it, it could have been this retreat, I can't actually remember, because I taught a number of retreats there. And, it, and, one, and at one retreat, I went to Mid-America Dharma, and it was snowing. And it was, you know, and it was, you know, it was winter in the Midwest. And, uh, you know, and I'm okay. I grew up in the Midwest in winters, and so I was fine with that. But I did think, I remember thinking when I got there, oh, this is going to be a Dukkha retreat for all these people. <laughs> and, and, uh, and she had a friend, Ginny was there, and she, I don't know if she was managing or sitting, but she had a friend there named Ram Jyoti. And Ram Jyoti was from Florida and was in a, 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 a yogic tradition and lovely woman. And, and she had driven up with Ram Jyoti. And at the end, she left. And then I got this email from Ginny afterwards. And she told me this. She said, Ram Jyoti and I got stuck in a long line of traffic on Highway 71 Revisited. Now, now that's a sophisticated joke. I just want you to know that. We, uh, so they got stuck in a long line of traffic on Highway 71 and then revisited in parentheses. We waited patiently while a snowdrift the size of an 18-wheeler was cleared off the road. What was lovely and quietly appreciated by both of us is that even though we knew that Ram Jyoti would miss her plane, it was all just fine. Then she continues, she says, on the road to the airport after the drift was clear, the car hit a patch of ice in the road. The car hit a patch of ice and in a long quiet moment, it began to turn sideways. I said, shit. <laughs> Ram Jyoti said, Ram. <laughs> we both use the same tone of voice. <laughs> there is no side of the duality that is better than the other. The car righted itself, and we went on. We are truly just drops of dew trembling on the tip of a leaf. Let's sit for a moment.
we are truly just drops of dew trembling on the tip of a leaf.